This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome to our seventh installment in Martial Matters of the Second Seminole War. Duplicity. In a previous episode, we talked about the Army's elusive goal of obtaining the decisive battle, one that would defeat the Seminole, conclude the war, and ensure the government's policy of Indian removal was upheld. After what it thought was its last great opportunity to defeat the Seminole in detail, the Battle of Okeechobee, the Army discovered it could no longer draw the Seminole into pitched combat. With an inability to compel the Seminole by military means, the Army turned to a host of non-military means to obtain its objective of Seminole removal. Many of these proved controversial and counterproductive. While the Army still sought a decisive battle that would end the war, it also sought to end the resistance through the capture or surrender of Seminole leaders. It included ruses and kidnapping, duplicity, negotiations, of course, and bribery, and maybe some other tactics as well. Joining us again to make sense of all this is Jesse Marshall, one of our self-taught resident experts on all things Seminole Wars. Jesse Marshall, welcome back to the Seminole Wars Authority. Thank you, Patrick. Conventional wisdom might say that it was the Seminole who were the holdup, the sticking point for concluding the war. But the high-level administration officials in Washington had the decisive say. So General Jessup, at the end of his campaign in 1837-38, had himself written to the administration in Washington, D.C., his opinion that military operations could not affect the emigration of the Seminoles West. It could not enforce the Treaty of Payne's Landing and the Fort Gibson the removal treaties. Washington officials proved implacable. Their say never changed. Remove the Seminole to Oklahoma. Still, the parlays went on. You see, what the goal was, they were more like military conventions because they could not contradict the standing treaty, Payne's Landing and Fort Gibson. Civil authorities were wholly acting under the authority. The treaty of Payne's Landing and that at Fort Gibson, <clears throat> by the treaty as written and as accepted by the Senate of the United States as valid and voted upon, the Seminoles officially had traded their Florida reservation lands all their aboriginal title lands had been exchanged with the United States for the lands west of the Mississippi River in the Indian Territory, now Oklahoma. The Seminole, of course, contended that there was chicanery relative to the establishment of those treaties. Some of them claimed that that's not what they were told they were signing. Therein lies most of the contention. At this day and age, it would be difficult to prove one way or the other what the case is. But what we can see is that when the Senate of the United States ratified those treaties, whether they were fraudulently arranged or not, they then had essentially the force of law. That is the predication upon which U.S. military forces were dedicated to the operations in Florida. Those treaties had been ratified by the Senate. They had the force of law, so the military cannot do anything to contradict those treaties. Even when Jessup and Fort Dade received the capitulation, essentially the army was taking charge of how the immigration was going to be handled. In other words, Jessup could report back to the administration in Washington, which happened to be, I believe, the end of Jackson's administration and the beginning of Van Buren. He could report back after Fort Dade that the Seminoles have agreed to capitulate. And so, in other words, the treaty will now be enforced at some point in the near future. 
But of course, that became impossible when the Seminole left the immigration camp and hostilities recommenced. The army was doing as much as it could within their jurisdiction to ameliorate the violence in the territory and the various issues relative to the war. And during the various peace talks and so forth, the army provided food and even some clothing, etc., to the Seminole and their poverty. Many officers felt that was unwise, but the army's goal was to convince the Seminole generally that the intent of the war was not their extermination, but their emigration. To that end, during the late 1830s, several of the notable Seminole chiefs like Alligator and some of the others that had already emigrated were brought back to Florida to aid in these negotiations to convince their countrymen to immigrate as well. Their point being that since the Seminole were now in the West in numbers and, of course, neighboring with the Creeks and the Cherokees and others, that the Seminole needed the numbers out West. So there was calls of some of the now Western Seminoles for the Florida Seminole to cease and desist and to consider immigration. Again, there was a hard core, though, of the Seminole in Florida were determined against removal and uh, resisted it at all costs. And those, of course, are the ancestors of today's Seminole tribe and Miccosukee tribe of Florida, and also the unincorporated Seminole or unorganized Seminole families that still live in South Florida. All right then, Jesse. How did these non-kinetic means fare in getting the Seminole to remove? They proved successful to a certain degree, but in their totality, they failed in the end because a couple of hundred Seminoles remained in the Everglades after 1842. There was the period of campaigning from the beginning of the war through General Jessup's term through early 1838. The goal of fighting a decisive battle, bringing the warriors into combat and defeating them, and potentially overwhelming not only the warriors, but capturing their women and children. After the Battle of Loxahatchee, that wasn't to be, because in part, General Jessup had proven that that system, no matter the efforts of the soldiers, could not be brought to bear good fruit. It brought more bitter fruit in the form of large casualty lists, with very few seminal casualties in comparison. By 1838, General Jessup was stating unequivocally that this isn't working. They can put as many troops as they want into Florida, and the Seminole also just slip by them. The campaigning system spent a great deal of money and human physical effort in bringing large U.S. military forces into the field. But by the War of 1812 or Civil War view, the battles, even the larger battles of the Florida War, were mere skirmishes in several what were called battles. But they were bloody enough. Don't get me wrong. For example, the Battle of Okeechobee, Colonel Foster in the 4th Infantry is quite certain that not more than 300 U.S. troops really engaged in that fight against the few hundred Seminoles there. So maybe 600 combatants in that action. And that's probably the largest sustained battle of the war, especially in terms of casualties outside of Dade's battle. But the casualties there were all one-sided. Well, General Jessup, in the spring of 1837, after a relatively successful campaign, he convinced the majority of Seminole to negotiate with him at Fort Dade. And they produced what's called the Treaty of Fort Dade, but it was really more of a military arrangement. It wasn't really a federal treaty. And it was essentially that the Seminoles' leadership agreed to abide by the removal treaties of Payne's Creek and Fort Gibson, that over a period of weeks, they would come into camps 
They would be fed by the army and they would be brought to Tampa and they would be sent west. The camps were established. There was one near Six Mile Creek near Tampa. They also established a large camp, temporary one at Fort Mellon, modern Sanford. So the Seminoles were receiving food. They were coming and going. It was a general period of peace through much of the late spring of 18. 18- 37. But in June of that year, Micanope and several other chiefs were at Tampa. General Jessup was fully cognizant that at any point the Seminoles could withdraw from the camps and take up arms again. So he had collected what he called hostages. In other words, particular sub-chiefs, etc., that he kept in garrisons. He's like, well, if you run away, we're going to keep these hostages to ensure that you're going to abide by your agreement. Sometime in June, Osceola and a number of Miccosukis showed up all of a sudden in the evening at the camp on Six Mile Creek and carried off Micanope and the hundreds of Seminoles camped there with him. In the morning, Jessup woke up and he was told that all the Seminoles had flown the coop. So months and months of arrangement and lots and lots of federal money and rations and even some clothing, etc., had gone to nothing but to give the Seminoles a lengthy break, as it were, in the struggle to maintain themselves in the Florida wilderness without permanent villages and farms and so forth. Jessup immediately began measures to pursue military options. He built up the largest military force over the next several months and used it at the battles of Okeechobee and Loxahatchee, etc. But in the meantime, he also continued negotiation. The government sent some Cherokee chiefs who Jessup didn't like them, but they said that they could probably negotiate with the Seminoles and get them to surrender. And so the Cherokee went into the wilderness and evidently talked to the Seminoles and told them that uh, the Western country wasn't as bad as they thought and they should surrender. But nothing came of that. So what Jessup considered the duplicity of the Seminoles at large in the Fort Dade Agreement. He didn't really see any problem with securing Seminole leaders under the flags of truce as he did subsequently in September, October, November, when his troops under his command took Osceola prisoner under a white flag of parley near Fort Payton and also secured Micanope and several other leaders in the same manner. Did it stating that these men had previously agreed to surrender and remove, and they lied, and so in his view, he was returning their faithlessness with the same by securing them under the white flags of parley. The political enemies of the Van Buren administration, which was coming into operation around the time, they made great hay of this, stating that, look at what you've done. You've turned our army into a bunch of backshooters, literally you know, capturing honorable enemies with white flags. At least they came in with white flags to talk, and you capture them and secure them. General Jessup, until his death, maintained that he didn't do anything wrong under the rules and usages of war. In the politics of the free republic, he never was really officially punished for doing anything wrong. It's just that what he had done was utilized in a national public way to attack the Jacksonians and their Indian removal policy. From what I've seen, criticism is mainly in the vein not to defend Osceola, but to attack the Jacksonian administration, the Jacksonian Democrats, but the Whig Party particularly. After the Battle of Loxahatchee, Jessup began negotiating with a large party of Seminoles who had fought at Loxahatchee under Tuskegee. And in March of 38, he surrounded them and captured them. And by the time he left the Florida command, he'd captured thousands of Seminoles. Nevertheless, the war went on. Who was the next general to command? 
and operations in the Florida theater. Dr. Jessup's term, General Zachary Taylor, newly promoted after the Battle of Okeechobee, commanded in Florida for quite a while. His command included a great deal of negotiation with the Seminoles. Taylor attempted to form a system of squares where he would establish small garrisons within each 10, 20 mile square, and that that small garrison, a company or more or less, would patrol that particular zone. They would also map it so that it could have a more clear system of maps of the whole territory. And the map of 1839 by Lieutenant Blake of the Army was largely produced from the field notes by the square commanders. His campaign of 1837-38, there were three major actions, Okeechobee, Jupiter Inlet, and Loxahatchee. The latter two fought on the same ground within a couple weeks of each other. None of those engagements saw the U.S. forces capture any significant number of Seminoles. However, shortly after those battles, Jumper, Alligator, Jumper had surrendered with his people prior to the battles. And shortly after the Battle of Okeechobee, Alligator and his band surrendered. They had been foremost in the Battle of Okeechobee, but they surrendered shortly afterwards. What was the fundamental flaw in the Army's expectations for how to end the war? The expectation that the Seminoles had a national cohesion, that if they defeated Micanopy and if they captured Micanopy, that would be the end of the war. Well, they captured Micanopy in the fall of 1837, and the war continued for several more years. Years. Captain Sprague's history of the war points it out particularly where the commanders in Florida after 1838, they had to recognize that very fact. The commanders in Florida did recognize that very fact. However, the U.S. government would not. It's evident from the various negotiations throughout the war period. When you look at General Jessup's correspondence, his expectation was that the government would do well by the Army by perhaps concluding the war by negotiation, perhaps by allowing the Seminoles to remain on a small reservation in South Florida. And during those negotiations, there would be no fighting. You can read the Journal of Ellis Hughes in South Florida. He talks about Sam Jones coming to the garrison, and he draws a picture of him and talks with him about the war. That was during a period of negotiation. The government's non-negotiable position was complete seminal removal from Florida. The government gave the army a limited say on how to do this, but it gave the seminal no say. You could read throughout the war period the debates between the military commanders and the civil authorities over how to finish the situation, but there's never an allowance to allow the Seminoles, let's say, in the conclusion of this conflict. As far as the federal government was concerned, the Seminoles had signed away that right with the removal treaties to Payne's Landing and Fort Gibson. As long as they didn't come in and surrender, like Sam Jones and the, the Creek Prophet, Atoki Tlaco, and their handful, the conflict would just continue inevitably, because as long as they were not being consulted, and when Sam Jones was consulted, he said, give us a small parcel, just give us a little bit of land, we don't need much, because there's not many people left. And the government says, no, no. The administration's view is that if the army captured or exterminated every Seminole, then the war would be over. But how can the army possibly do that with thousands of square miles of uninhabited wilderness and only a few thousand Seminoles to find? The government even took the extraordinary step of sending its general-in-chief to Florida to obtain Seminole agreement to remove. Although that general's efforts seemed promising at first, they too proved illusory. 
1939, Army's commanding general in chief, Major General Maycomb, came to Florida and at Fort King worked out a tacit ceasefire agreement. Seminoles would still be required to move west, but to end the war, the Seminoles would be allowed to go into South Florida and stay away from the settlement, and the act of fighting would end. That peace of 1839 failed. Only in 1842 did the U.S. government finally relent. It took the change of administration from the Jacksonian Democrats to the Whigs, ostensibly under Harrison and Tyler. And Tyler prosecuted the war to its most violent period. You can't accuse the Harrison and Tyler administration of being weak on the Florida War. They prosecuted it probably to its utmost extent in the summer of 1841, where the troops were kept in constant motion regardless of the weather. And that the criminals didn't expect. So there was a change of administration, more intense prosecution of the war, but something else changed. The Army was now willing to fight in all seasons, not just campaign in the healthy season. What was the catalyst to get the Army to change its thinking on the wisdom of campaigning in the unhealthy seasons in Florida? The summertime was considered dangerous. They didn't understand that mosquitoes spread malaria and so forth, but they knew that Florida had lots of swamp. You wander around them in the heat of the summer, you're very likely to get sick. So there's a lot of people did not want to engage in a summer campaign in Florida. To demonstrate that active military duty in Florida had been no more deadly portionally than elsewhere. It took the efforts of the Army Medical Department in 1839, they produced a publication which compared the mortality data of the U.S. Army over the previous, previous 10 or 20 years. Based in measure on that data, Colonel Worth subsequently ordered military operations to continue year-round in Florida. And it was that summer of 1841 that really broke the resistance of the Tallahassees and the remaining Miccosukees in central Florida anyway by destroying their crops while they were still growing during the Army's summer campaign. The Army was particularly effective with its scorched earth policy against the Seminoles in burning down their crops crops and so forth. One reason is that they had finally learned some of the seminal ways and practices. This was first-hand knowledge and from an unlikely source. Tell us about this. Negro Sampson Forrester was captured by the Seminoles there at Caloosahatchee, if I remember correctly. And he spent the next year in change with the Seminoles in the Everglades. When he was released, he provided a narrative of the Seminole lifestyle in the Everglades during the war, which is the best primary document about the Seminole hiding in the Everglades from 1840 to 42, how they hunted their tactics in avoiding the troops, how they planted their crops on some of the islands, etc. Once the Seminoles' crops were destroyed and they reached a point of death Desperation. Worth did get a battle. It was the final battle of the war at Palakwakaha Hammock on April of 1842. Ironically, in the last major engagement of the Second Seminole War, the Army finally got the decisive battle that it sought, but it mattered less to the war's outcome than it would have if it had occurred early on. There was simply too few Seminole left in Florida for it to have the grand impact that the Army had been anticipating from a decisive battle brigade-sized force of regulars under Worth, along with some friendly Seminoles and Black Seminole scouts, engaged and attacked the fortified hideout of Halak Tustanugi and his Miccosukee warriors near Palaklakaha and drove them from their position with the loss of one dragoon killed and several others wounded. Bragg, the author of the Florida War History of 1848, was present in that battle and gives an excellent description of it. 
By the time the war concluded and peace was established and the Seminoles and the United States again regulated trade between each other, there really weren't more than a few hundred Seminoles left in the Everglades. The overwhelming number, which comes to nearly 5,000, if I remember, were removed west. And once they got out there, there was still politics. The Seminoles in the Western Reservation, they didn't conglomerate together immediately. Many of them remained around the agency at Fort Gibson. Some of them moved into the Cherokee lands and others were on creek lands. And it was difficult for the army to get these separate bands to cooperate because some of them had actually practically come to blows against each other in Florida. You used a curious term. By the time the war was concluded and peace was established, there was no treaty, there was no armistice, there was no truce. There was, however, mutual exhaustion from both sides. It was Colonel Worth taking advantage of a victory in a decisive battle to unilaterally declare hostilities were at an end and the army was withdrawing. What followed is what one might term a period of benign indifference. The army would conduct no further harassment of the Seminoles. No further Seminole were to be removed. And in return, and provided they kept to their own, they would be left alone unmolested. In essence, the army finally got what it had been asking of the U.S. government for a number of years. The difference was, at this point, there were just too few Seminole left, and they were too hard to get at to justify further operations. When the military operations ceased, Florida was still a territory, so all the public land essentially was still under congressional authority. Only after Florida's statehood did the United States turn over all the unimproved lands to the state, and the state could sell it, etc., or dispose of it as it saw fit. But Seminole were, there was an agreement made, again, essentially a military agreement communicated to them that if they remained in the region in which the handful were largely settled, that there wouldn't be any difficulties with them. This agreement was largely verbal, mind you, because again, by law, the Seminoles had traded their eastern land. In other words, the Seminole in Florida were not given a reservation. Under the effects of the Treaty of Payne's Landing and Fort Gibson, the United States' view was that they were members of a nation that had lived in the Indian Territory. So again, there were occasions of negotiation to get them to remove peaceably thereafter. The Third Seminole War, sparked by a U.S. Army surveying party, which unwisely decided to tramp up to Billy Bowleg's village and Billy Bullock's and his people split because there's always, what are troops doing here? What do they want? So when they left, the soldiers evidently had their way with some of Billy Bullock's vegetable garden and so forth, and, and the warriors subsequently ambushed them. But it obviously wasn't beyond the Seminoles to recognize that there wouldn't really be any reason for troops to be scouting that vicinity unless they were surveying it, and there was no reason for them to survey it unless it was going to be subdivided so on. So <clears throat> when that war commenced in earnest, the small war party under Asen Tustanugi proceeded north, and that party is credited with most of the raids that were conducted in, again, the South Florida area subsequently. That party appears to have been largely scattered after a combat along the Peace River in which Austin was credited as being killed. Subsequently, Florida volunteers and U.S. troops pursued the Seminole in the Everglades themselves. There was some Florida volunteers organized in what's now Marion County that patrolled along the St. Johns River, but after 1856, the Seminole didn't really appear north at all in numbers. 
What kind of contact did the U.S. Army and the Seminole have in Florida after the declaration of the end of hostilities? There were ongoing negotiations, and Captain Casey of the U.S. Army was charged essentially with continuing communication with the Florida Seminole. I couldn't give you a number about how many subsequently during that period of uh, from 42 to 55. I couldn't tell you offhand how many chose to emigrate. I believe there were some, but by and large, the majority were perfectly satisfied to remain in Florida. During the Third Seminole War, a large number under Billy Bullegs were emigrated at the conclusion of that conflict, leaving the Florida Seminole numerically even weaker than they had been in 1842. So again, the ancestry of the modern Florida Seminole was very much reduced by 1859. I don't personally know of any enforced removal by the United States government after the 1865. I don't recall seeing reference to it. So it looks like the government essentially dropped the issue as far as not being willing to press it to a military standoff or a confrontation. Even with this tacit agreement, decades later, the Seminole were still somewhat reticent to go out among the general American public for fear of removal. I've seen references that the Seminole were very nervous about that. They could be very shy when they came Florida's coastline was settled in South Florida, particularly in the late 19th century, when Seminole would trade, but that they were usually somewhat concerned. I've seen it claimed that Seminole would be trading at one of the local stores on the coast and say a guard or a revenue cutter would pull in and they would leave precipitously concerned that it's going to somehow enforce their removal west. Regardless, it was in the 1950s that the United States government made a new arrangement with the Seminole Tribe of Florida. Subsequently, the Miccosukee Tribe also have their own reservation lands in Florida. Consequently, we could trace the conclusion of the removal period for the Seminole, really, I suppose, legally to the 1950s. Just about concurrent with Colonel Worth's declaration of a cessation of hostilities in 1842 came the Congress's passage of legislation. That would be the Armed Occupation Act of 1842. That essentially took the soldiers out and put the settlers in for defense in Florida. How did that work out? There was always that understanding that war could recommence. So a lot of the armed occupationists also built blockhouses and otherwise fortified their homes. There's reference to a blockhouse for community defense having been erected at what's now Chinsega Hill. In fact, there's an old newspaper photograph of what was purported in the early 20th century to be the remnants of the Indian War 1840s blockhouse, which, after the settlement of the Chinsega Hill area for the plantation, that blockhouse was used as a large corn crib. Are there any blockhouses still around from that era? There is one Florida blockhouse that survived. It sat up on the St. Mary's River for a long time and has preserved and moved to a historical park somewhere in North Florida. Yeah, that was the Burnside Blockhouse. It was constructed in Sanderson around 1837, but it's moved up today to the Heritage Park at McClenny. That blockhouse is rather simple, a two-story affair. Not at all as complex as military type when Fort Foster or Fort King, but still significant considering the Indians did not have artillery. They would not be able to take a blockhouse. They could burn it down. In some battles, they'd attempt to do that, but wasn't always as it seems. Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri was a giant in the Senate at that time. 
For our purposes, he was best known for ensuring a well-regulated citizen militia in the Florida Territory. He was considered the essential sponsor of the Armed Occupation Act, and in his discussion of it, when he promoted it, he did so by noting that military operations were clearly not going to settle the problems in Florida. And by problems, he's not necessarily referring to the Seminole immigration anymore, but there's a significant amount of violence and bloodshed on the Florida frontier where you know small villages and individual farms were being sacked and burned. And this violence, of course, was depopulating particularly East Florida's county to the point where statehood became even less likely, you know, as the people are leaving the territory. Military operations had failed to prevent this from increasing. And he noted by 1840, 41, he said, it's been two years since the significant battle has been fought in Florida, but there's been this continuous raiding strategy by some of the warriors. So military means should no longer be looked at as those by which a lasting success in, of the Florida issues can be achieved. And so he looked back historically, and he notes that the Romans had used armed settlements, and even in the U.S., the British had copied the Romans, and Colonel Henry Bouquet during the French and Indian War had written a treatise noticing that Americans that were simply clothed and well-armed with rifles or fowling pieces with hunting dogs and horses settled them on the frontier and let them build a frontier settlements with blockhouses for local defense, let them stockade or fortify their farmhouses. Over time, advancing the settlements will reduce the violence and render the need for the security of the frontier by federal troops unnecessary. With that in mind, U.S. forces had already been providing food and weapons and ammunition to Florida settlers in East Florida since at least 1840. In fact, Lieutenant Marcena Patrick of the Army reported that he had provided rations, ammo, and guns to something like 1,300 white people and about 500 black people in East Florida who were otherwise unable to farm considering the, the frequent calls upon them for militia or volunteer service and patrolling generally in territorial service. At that time, he mentions that the weapons were provided to both. Both the white and black men were all armed with weapons and ammunition by the U.S. Army. Now, there was a territorial law passed in 1840 that allowed slaves to be armed against the uh, Indian attack and so forth. So that appears to be the legal precedent by which Patrick was providing arms to the black men in East Florida as well. Events took a fortuitous turn, though. In 1842, in August, as the Seminole War was concluded as a military operation, the Armed Occupation Act was passed whereby any American over the age of 18 who was capable of bearing arms could relocate to Florida and choose 160 acres of his own choosing. And if he settled upon it for, and built a habitable dwelling that appeared to be permanent, and cultivated five acres of the 160, in five years he would receive an absolute patent for that 160 acres of federal property. So in the less than a year that that act had an opening window, I believe there were something like 1,100 warrants issued for armed occupation claims. And the intent was, of course, that by ensuring that the men were able-bodied and capable of bearing arms, that they would then be essentially able to defend their private dwellings 
these claims did not have to be anywhere near each other, of course. They could be completely out in left field, miles from their nearest neighbor, but they couldn't be within two miles of a federal military post, and I believe uh, generally they didn't want them near the seacoast in certain sectors. The intent was that the armed occupation settler, as an armed person, basically, or at least someone capable of bearing arms, if that was the statement, would be able to defend his improvements. And this was strictly for South Florida. The boundary line was south of Noonansville, or what's now Gainesville, essentially. The Armed Occupation Act was to form a large buffer zone of central South Florida and have potentially armed settlers start to develop it. And this would form a buffer zone that would prevent any future Seminole Wars. The Seminole that remained largely remaining in the Everglades, it would be very difficult for them, of course, to reach the more settled areas in North Florida or West Florida by settling the armed occupationists and their farms and so forth. And in fact, during the Third Seminole War, almost all the violence was limited to what's now Hillsborough County, Polk County, and Hernando and Pasco counties and Manatee. The Armed Occupation Act seems to have been a success in that the Seminole War of the 1850s, none of the war parties appear to have passed far north of the Slick City or the Gainesville region. They were all contained well south of there, which was the intent of the Armed Occupation Act of 1842. How do we quantify Armed Occupation Act settlers? Were they part of the unorganized militia? They were not unorganized because the Florida militia laws were still in force. So, for example, if you put in an armed occupation claim within Hillsborough County and settled there, as soon as you settled in that county, you're now enrolled in that county's militia regiment. It is a federal requirement for you to receive that federal land. You had to settle on it and you had to be armed and you had to be willing to defend it. If your armed occupation claim, again, were in Alachua County, as a resident of Alachua County, if you were of age, you would have been lawfully required to enroll in the 6th Regiment of Florida Militia. Each county in Florida had a regiment, you see. So your armed occupationist status did not exempt you from your militia duty. How did the Armed Occupation Act aid settlers in a way that sedentary militia service did not? You have the Armed Occupation Act of 1842, which in lieu of pay offers to any man that would settle south of a certain line and at least two miles outside of a federal military district, garrison, etc. Many of the armed occupationists, in fact, had been veterans of Florida militia active service, but considering that their pay in many cases was wrapped up in this uh, political controversy, in the meantime, under the Armed Occupation Act, the same men could lay claim to 160 acres of federal land and acquire a title to it if they remained on it for five years. I can't remember the exact number, but I believe that the average federal land price at that time was about $1.25 an acre. So multiply that by 160, and you get an idea of the cash value of the land grant that was being offered to the armed occupationists. How long did settlers have to stake their claim, and where did they stake it? There have been maps people have produced marking the various armed occupation settlements. But beyond the armed occupationists, it's well to remember that you had less than a year to file your armed occupation claim. The armed occupationists formed, particularly around what's now Brooksville, you'll see that in the big hammock country there, 
there was several armed occupation claims that were within relatively close proximity to each other. So these scattered settlements over the period from 1842 through the 1850s became the groundwork for the community that developed around Brooksville by the late 1850s, for example. And this was similarly the case in other districts. But it is notable that the former Seminole Chuckachatty region around the old Seminole town of Chuckachatty burned by General Scott's forces in the spring of 1836, that that vicinity became a particular zone of armed occupationists. And in fact, in 1843, one of the last American casualties of the Second Seminole War, Florida War, was Mrs. Crum, the wife of one of the armed occupation claimants, was ambushed and killed near their claim there in what's now Brooksville. So there was still danger. Many of the settlers generally built blockhouses for mutual defense, just as they had during the main part of the war period. There was a gentleman named Jennings that lived in Homosassa in the 1850s, and in a brief memoir of his service as a blockade runner during the Civil War, he mentions that the great concern among many of the people was still an Indian outbreak even during the period of the Brooksville Raid and the U.S. Navy blockaders raiding the coast, many of the people were still concerned that at some point the Seminole might go on the warpath. That's what scared people, considering the skill with which the Seminole warriors had demonstrated in making their raids during the 1830s and 40s and the large scale of the violence. I suppose that's just a natural concern. How did the Third Seminole War serve as a testbed for the Armed Occupation Act of 1842? To a greater degree, the Third Seminole War was the conflict that really put to the test the Armed Occupation Act of 1842. The bulk of South Florida settlers, many of them were the armed occupationists who had since received their full patent rights over their land grants. And in 1856, a Seminole raiding party under Asentustanugi passed from South Florida up through these settlements in the Tampa Bay area and up into what's now Pasco and Hernando County, raiding some of these farms, most notably the attack on the Bradley Farm, and then some fighting over on the Peace River, which resulted in the death of Austin and some of his warriors, as well as some of the Florida militiamen. This was one of the last major raids by any number of Seminoles into the settlements. And while there was constant patrolling for the next year and a half by dozens of Florida militia and volunteer companies mustered into federal service for various periods, in fact, a whole regiment of Florida volunteers was formed in western and middle Florida and sent down to the Everglades for several months of active duty, patrolling with U.S. troops to capture any given number of Seminoles in that vicinity and then remove them west. There were no major raids after Austin's raid in 1856. The number of long-term settlers in South Florida that were capable of taking on Seminole raiding parties fighting at Peace River particularly demonstrated that the locals were now familiar with the tracks and byways of the localities, and they were capable of tracking Although the Seminoles did a pretty good job of moving rapidly and avoiding detection by the fight at the Peace River they had been caught up with, and they were not particularly safe. There were whole companies of men that used the term trailers, like we would use the term trackers. So they would refer to many of the South Florida men, Florida citizens, are considered expert trailers. And so the Seminole were placed at a slight disadvantage. They no longer had the means of passing through these settlements entirely without being spotted or tracked. 
to that extent, we could see that the Armed Occupation Act put these settlers in the way, central eastern Florida, between the larger settlements along the Georgia borderlands. Now there was this essentially a belt of armed occupation settlers who, working together during the Third Seminole War, formed several companies under Captains Durrance and Kendrick and uh, Leroy Leslie, among many others, Robert Bullock along the St. John's River. In fact, it's notable that when the war between the states broke out in 1861, you'll notice that almost all of these officers subsequently became senior officers in the state's forces during that war. Robert Bullock eventually became a brigade commander in the Confederate Army, commanding the Florida Brigade in the West. Leroy Leslie, who in a couple of years had commanded the Hillsborough County crackers in you know, trailing the particular Indian raiders coming into this back settlement. Leroy Leslie commanded the Confederate Home Guard around Brooksville during the Brooksville Raid of 1864, etc. So the armed occupationists not only formed a bulk of the defense during the Third Seminole War of the 1850s, but also the bulk of the Home Guard forces for the Confederacy laid in the war between the states. A large number of them also served in one of the last Confederate units formed in the Deep South, the 1st Florida Battalion of Special Cavalry, also known as the Cow Cavalry Battalion. Their duty being to round up all of the South Florida scrub cattle and send it to the Confederate Army to feed lead the army during the siege of Petersburg, etc. As we conclude, let's sum up. Was the government right to finally take the Army's advice and settle rather than continuing to prosecute the war? Given enough time, another 30 years, they might have captured that last 300. But the government wanted to move on to other things. And so do we with this podcast. Jesse Marshall, thanks for joining us once again for the Seminole Wars Authority. Well, I thank you, Patrick. I hope that I've made comments that might actually be useful for your podcast and might be useful to some of your listening public. This podcast is copyright 2022, the Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.